You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, in this episode, in an act of true sportsmanship, we introduce you to a rival podcaster, Daniel Gundlach, host and producer of Counter Melody. He may be our foe, but he deserves your compassion, all Ted Lasso-like. <laughs> and then PJ checks in from NYC, having taken his son to Lowengrin. Man, that Ooh. guy has guts. Plus, in the two-minute drill... The ring cycle is going down under. Find out if Fasselt and Fafner will find gold inside their blooming onion. <laughs> Make sure you was, subscribe. Was that to a leprechaun? I don't understand. <laughs> I think that Stitcher was a hate crime, Spot. but we'll move on. Okay, no, let's just let's just okay. Look, I'm I not great. That. I'm not great on the accents. All right, I'm trying. <laughs> I just I just read the jokes that the people put in front of me. Oliver Camacho. <laughs> You are one of the jokes in front of me right now. <laughs> <laughs> nice burn. Thank you. That's what we need on this show. We need like some spice, you know, people tune Ooh, in for the spice, for the spice of the sports. The we should change the name of our podcast to, to the, uh, the spice girls, spice sports and sopranos. Ooh, you know? delicious. <laughs> That's actually a really good Dude. name for a podcast. Yeah. What do you, what do you think that. West Weston you like, or you don't like? Oh, I, I do. I mean, like I, I, I am, I mean, if you ask anyone who knows me, I'm, I'm the guy who is like, when I'm making dinner, I'll, I'll be like, what is the weirdest thing I can put into this meal? Like the other day I was making uh, uh caramelized hair? onions no, no, I, mean, I was making caramelized onions, and I was like, what if I put in some curry powder? What if I put in some bay leaves, which was a bad idea? What if I put in some white pepper? What if I did this? What if I did that? Until you, until the next thing you know, your your caramelized onions are mostly Have orange a juice. Tummy ache. You know? Yeah, this is. Yeah, I it's. Don't, a, it, I don't, I don't like recommend it. <laughs> yeah, Ashley, yeah, have yeah. have you been cooking? Have you been watching basketball? What have you been doing? A little bit of both, and I've gotten about as much spice as I need from the Women's National Championship <laughs> that was last night. Um, I know I praised Caitlin Clark on this uh, show last week, and she Indeed was you did. very deserving of it. Very, very deserving. But she's got a little bit of sass and a little bit of attitude on the court, and uh, people have been praising her for it and saying, oh, she's so good. She's so good. And and then we had this game between her Iowa and Angel Reese's Louisiana State. LSU ended up taking the National Championship. Angel Reese mimics some of that behavior of Caitlin Clark. And then all of a sudden, magically, uh, she was considered to be unsportsmanlike and somebody used the word thuggish. Um, and I don't, Black, have any idea why they would use a double standard for uh, these two athletes, Black. I'm not really mm, sure uh, why Caitlin Clark White would be looked at differently than Black Angel uh, Reese. Um, but anyway, it's, it's just interesting to see how all of that plays out. But at any rate, congratulations to LSU on their national championship. The men's championship being played just a few moments uh i don't even know if we're gonna be about able to a half update, an hour folks. from now yeah exactly uh florida atlantic who we had picked to go to the final lost on a buzzer beater to san diego state by a single point yukon however in the final and tipped to win by over seven points we'll see what happens let's talk some opera huddle up 
Let's go inside the huddle. So you'll get this uh, introduction again uh, after we hear a little bit of uh, Daniel Gundlach's, Gundlach's uh, counter melody. Um, but I mainly wanted to bring on Daniel because in the absence of Matt Cummings all these weeks, I've been missing just that in- level, intelligence and that just insight, that level yeah. that level of expertise yeah that passion that like <laughs> willing class. to that willing to you know Spice. do all the research uh and to learn everything <laughs> about an artist which you can hear on counter melody so without further ado here's a little bit of uh what counter melody sounds like these are just the final roulades of the je veux vivre This performance took place on the 15th of December, 1967. Just a little bit of delightful audio from a podcast that Opera Box Score is recommending you check out. It's called Counter Melody. And the host is countertenor, coach, teacher, and writer Daniel Gunzlach. Welcome to Opera Box Score. Thank you so much, Oliver. So I wanted to bring you on because one of our co hosts uh, sort of has the same level of passion uh, about recordings and about uh, singers histories and biographies as you do. And um, his name is Matt. And uh, Matt has been absent from the podcast for a couple of weeks because he's he's a working singer. And so when he's done with all of his gigs, he'll be able to rejoin us. I've been missing uh, the type of content that he provides for us. And I stumbled across your podcast <laughs> looking oh. looking for, uh, you know, podcasts about singers. And he's man, the one who did the Martina Arroyo yeah. a few weeks yeah. ago, right? Yeah. That was so... Fantastic. I absolutely loved it. And he's so informed. Yeah, isn't he great? It's really wonderful to hear someone with that level of enthusiasm. Yeah. Well, you've been doing this since 2019 and you're approaching 200 episodes. So we want to get you some of our opera box for listeners by the time you celebrate 200. Um, But uh, I guess we should just start like what, why, why did you begin this? (laughs) Well, somehow I found myself an American expat in Berlin. And my performing career for a number of reasons was really coming to an an end. And I had to figure out something to do with my life so that I had a reason to get up in the morning, quite honestly. (laughs) And I had, you know, this, this sort of parable experience, which I don't need to go into, but the, the moral of that real life parable for me was, you know, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, it was that sort of thing. And I had had in the back of my mind for a while, the idea of doing a podcast, but I kept putting it off or putting it on the back burner. And it occurred to me that it was just time to do it. So I did a crowdfunding thing in the fall of 2019. 
And I launched the podcast at the end of September in 20, 2019, the same year. And it just so happened that it was right before the pandemic, of course. So it came at a very good time for me. While all working singers were sitting at home, you know, dreadfully feeling bereft and 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 rudderless, I had to put out this podcast every single week. And as you know yourself you know it's a lot of work and this is a one man operation i'm ma i'm pa i'm you know counter melody <laughs> that's just i'm it's entirely a one man show and um that has its pros and cons but i certainly don't have to answer to anybody else the ideas the content it's all mine so well let's Let's give the audience a chance to understand what is the thesis of the podcast? Like, what is a typical episode? A typical episode. A typical episode to me is you paying tribute to a singer. And, you know, yes, going, going that's to- that's a common yeah. thing that I do. Now, if I'm having a really busy week, I'll mm -hmm. put together sort of an omnibus episode, like mm -hmm. spring songs or no. different versions of the four last songs or Verdi birthday tribute mm -hmm. or something like that. That's a little bit more compact and easier to put together. And takes yes, less research. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, it takes a little less research, it's true. And then it's it's that's related more to just personal taste then, mm -hmm. right? I don't have to give a big introduction to the four last songs. I just mm -hmm. have to choose versions that I really like. Mm -hmm. So if I'm having a tough week and I'm doing freelance work, you know, uh, e money making work that's taking <laughs> up too much time, then that's the sort of thing that I'll choose. But my favorite kind of episode is um choosing a singer that I absolutely love that I think maybe is not well enough known by today's audience and presenting them in all of their majesty and glory honestly well, well that gives us to do. that gives us a chance to listen to a little bit of music right now um one of the uh sort of brand ideas of your show is the idea of a great discovery and introducing the audience to somebody that you've discovered and you really want to share their artistry and you know create awareness. Um, and I think one of the singers you wanted to talk about today was Muriel Smith. I am mad for Muriel Smith. Mm -hmm. I discovered her by accident when I was putting together my first Christmas episode. And I was listening to something by the tenor Luther Saxon, and I was doing a little research into who he was. And I found that he was the original Joe in Carmen Jones. And as I was exploring Carmen Jones, I found that the, the creator of that role, the title role, was Muriel Smith, who at the time was still a student at Curtis. And she was the first African-American student to attend there. So that immediately captured my interest. And when I heard the voice and the interpretive power of, of, of her music making, I just was completely blown away. Then I started collecting some really rare 78s of pop music that she had done because she eventually went over to Great Britain, where she created for the West End the role of Bloody Mary, the role of Lady Tiang in The King and I. So all of those sort of exoticized roles 
where nevertheless they get to sing, you know, one of these really noble songs or, well, not, well, at least, at least uh, Bloody Mary gets to sing Bali High, you know. Um, Happy Talk is something else, I guess. But, but she, and, and not only that, but the voice that you hear on the film version of the South Pacific movie, even though it's played by Juanita Hall, who of course created the role on Broadway, you hear Muriel Smith's voice because Richard Rogers loved her voice and he um, insisted that her voice be used in the movie. Well, so you don't, you don't see her, but you hear her. Let's listen to some Muriel Smith right now. Uh, I'll reveal our hand and say that we're going to add in a clip in post-production. So uh, we'll give you the proper uh, credit of what this piece is uh, after we wrap up our interview. Let the past just fade away. Why get lost in yesterday? The important thing is here and now. And our love is here to stay. pop music with such immediacy, with such vitality, but also almost like a bel cantista, like a bel cantista, like, a, like she's singing. She has such incredible lines, such beautiful legato, and yet she manages to really highlight the words. And for me, when I was pursuing my singing career, those were the most important things to me were, you know, singing with line, singing with my whole body and really finding a way of communicating the words and the meaning of the words without ever, you know, finding a way of blending those things, the, the, the legato line with the really the, the commitment to the words. And that is what I hear in the voice of Muriel Smith. And she is really the, the one of the greatest examples I've ever heard of that. Well, I want to go back to, um, you know, how you put together an episode. And you've already hinted uh, that you are using multiple sources like 78s. And, uh, and you're living in, in Berlin. Um, I can't say that here in Chicago, I could find many record stores that still maintain uh, a classical shelf, <laughs> let alone right. shelves. So what's, yeah. it, what's it like finding, uh, as you call them, curios <laughs> uh, over there in Germany? 
Well, I order a lot of stuff from the website Discogs, where there's an incredible listing of stuff. And most of that stuff, I don't know if it orig- if that website originated in Germany, but a lot of the um, the sellers are in Germany. And so I can get my hands on this stuff relatively quickly. And, you know, when I moved into this present apartment uh, just over four years ago, I had maybe 10 LPs. And now uh, I, the entire apartment is just overrun with these things because every week when I choose to do a specific singer, um, for instance, one that I did recently is the Polish baritone Andrzej Hjolski. And if anybody knows him at all, it's because he created some important uh, roles and uh, pieces of Penderecki. The Lucas Passion he created. He created the the role of uh, Grandier in Devils of Loudun, and so if he's he also he also recorded King Roger, didn't he? Yes, and it is sublime. And I included that on my episode about him, and uh, it turns out that I have a friend, an old friend who's an enthusiastic listener to the podcast who knows his son who hmm. lives in Chicago. Hmm. And this is the greatest thing that ever happens to me with the podcast, as far as I'm concerned. When I hear from people who either I've done them as a subject, like the Scottish soprano Margaret Marshall or um, George Shirley, and I hear from them with, and they are so enthusiastic and appreciative about of my work. Hmm. Or when I hear from the children of these artists who, you know, the artist may no, no longer be alive, but they have progeny. And I heard from the African-American Charles Holland's son. And he just, he said that he had, it was wonderful for him to get this reminder of his father's importance, of his significance, his artistic significance, and his, you know, just his historical importance. So that to me is so important. We're speaking today to Daniel Gunzlach, the uh, producer and host uh, and everyman of Counter Melody (laughs) podcast. And um, I have one more question I want to ask you. Actually, I want to ask you to do a little exercise here uh, to whet the appetite of our listeners and do something that you have done on your own show, which is um, rehabilitate an artist with perhaps a maligned reputation or maybe um, has given poor performances, which has created some disreputation of their artistry. Um, Who would you like to quote unquote rehabilitate right now? Well, there are so many that I could, but in our pre-recording discussions, I decided that I really wanted to talk about Maria Ewing. The late Maria Ewing. I'm almost going to start to cry because I saw her twice. I saw her actually three times. I saw her do Blanche on the Met tour when I was just a young slip of a thing. And it had, I mean, I didn't get to see Shirley Verrett do Lidouane, but I saw Crespin sing uh, uh, Croissy and I saw Maria Ewing and it was an absolutely shattering experience. 
And they're still doing that production amazingly, but it is one of the great things that the Met has ever done, I think. But Maria Ewing for me was just supreme in that part. The, her commitment, her, you know, and her, her acting chops. And at that stage, really her singing as well were beyond compare. I really think of her as one of the great singing actors. Now, years later, I also saw her do Lady Macbeth of Mitsensk. It was virtually unlistenable at that point. It sounded like she was inhaling as she was singing, but I could not take my eyes off of her. It was one of the most compelling acting performances that I've ever seen anywhere particularly on the operatic stage. The following year, I also saw her do Marie and Wozzeck. That was, the, I think, the last thing she ever sang at the Met, I think. Um, but again, a singer of such integrity. Again, somebody who would, you know, would, would cut herself and bleed to get, to communicate to the audience what was central to the role. And what's fascinating to me is that for the most part, she maintained some kind of vocal integrity as well. Now she sounded awful in both of those last roles that I mentioned, but that was not typical of her work. There's also a recording that I found on YouTube of her singing from the time that she was doing that Marie and Wozzeck, a recording of her doing uh, the Lamento d'Arianna of Monteverdi arranged by Karl Orff with the New York Philharmonic. And it was, had been broadcast and she is so riveting and she sings so beautifully. And I found also a very late clip of her about 10 years before she died singing the role in uh, La Voix Humaine. And again, with what I would consider, you know, a compromised vocalism perhaps, but it was not, um, you know, she just got a really bad rap for a lot of stuff. But if I, you know, when I was studying her videos, for instance, of Carmen, which, was, she was so maligned for, but those are incredible performances, both of the videos that are extant of her. And they're also very, very beautifully sung, which comes as a surprise to people, I think. So it was, I had been planning an episode you know, I always do a great big production for Black History Month because it's so important to me to really foreground those singers. And I had been planning to do, you know, she was going to be my first episode in February 2022. And then I remember this, we were taking, we were taking a trip to Vienna and I arrived with all of my Maria Ewing material and to the news that she had just died. And I was so, I was just, I was just, I felt like I had just been torn in half, you know, I, and so I just thought, okay, this has got to be one of the best episodes I've ever done. 
because she's so important to me. Well, and uh, and I think I managed. I think I managed. Uh, I've had so many people uh, speak about how much that episode in particular meant to them. So Well, that will be, uh, let's see, episode number, what's between 125 and 129. So if you're using uh, the Apple Podcast app, you'll have to scroll down uh, to get to that's from February of 2022. You can't when search you on Apple Podcasts? Uh, just on their webpage, not on. Uh, Oi, yeah, yeah, that's not very convenient. <laughs> but you know, but this last, but I do try. If someone has a, a birthday, or if there's a reason to really highlight a past episode that I've done, I do have one of those. Oh God, I can't even remember what it's called. But one the of those pop stylings. Where, oh, <laughs> yeah, one of those where you just kind of put put a link to an episode okay. of past episode, and okay. and I also do a lot of postings on both Instagram and Facebook of these episodes with the link, so that people can go right to it and listen to the episode. Wonderful. So, well, uh, we're gonna. You know, we're going to drop in uh, a little bit of Maria Ewing. You, I'll let you finish what you're saying, but we're going to drop in some Maria Ewing uh, very shortly. Go ahead. What were you about to say? I, I don't even remember. It's not It's not that important. But <laughs> but but just that it, I, I know that uh, sometimes uh, it's not so easy to find the podcasts, but I do try to keep uh, re-presenting uh, them, I guess, so okay. that, you know, if there's, yeah. Yeah, like on your social media to say, hey, I remember exactly. I did this episode. Yes. Exactly. Well, so um, I think that's a great place to stop and for people to um, check out the Maria Ewing episode uh, on Counter Melody. And Daniel, uh, thank you so much for doing all of this work. I think um, I have to say that you and I are kindred spirits and that it feels like a vocation to share um, what we love, but also to do this, the hard work and the research so that these artists' legacies will live on longer than, you know, these people who don't have websites anymore, they don't have publicists anymore. Uh, so it's up to us, the fans, to keep their artistry uh, at the forefront. Uh, so I really do appreciate uh, your show you. and, and, and all the I will. I will just say that, you know, uh, this is part of my uh, heritage, shall I say, because my father was a minister and I, I, I often feel like I'm doing a little bit of proselytizing, you know, I mean, we didn't have all that much in common and we certainly didn't, uh, you know, uh, share many values, but I do appreciate that aspect of his life that you know that he was so passionate about what he brought to his uh congregation and i don't have a congregation but i do have a devoted listenership and i'm very grateful to have this opportunity to present to people these magnificent artists <laughs>
in that interview, you heard two selections. The first one uh, was by uh, sung by Mur- Muriel Smith. That was uh, How Important Can It Be? That was a rare 1955-78. The band leader uh, on that recording was Wally Scott, who now identifies as Angela Morley. And the second clip was the late Maria Ewing uh, from a live telecast with the New York Philharmonic. That was um, Monteverdi's Lament of Ariana in the orchestration by Karl Orff, sung in German. As it was intended. Yes. (laughs) Well, you might subscribe to Counter Melody, countermelodypodcast.com, but you want to make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Stitcher and Spotify. You're going to click follow Apple Podcasts. So the call to action on Counter Melody is never to subscribe. It's always give me money. If you want to see this thing. Go on, give me money. So he must have gotten so because he always thinks, yeah, like he yeah. starts each episode by thanking his new Patreons. So hmm, maybe awesome. we need to, all right, yeah, we could take a leaf from that book. Give us money and also listen and subscribe. Yeah, you got something to say? Then, yeah, all right, you can say something. This is listener mailbag. Hello, Opera Box Score. This is PJ Ewing. I'm here at the Met yet again, seeing Lohengrin. Just wow. It's the first intermission. We've just finished Act One, and the set is just stunning. There is a screen, a visual screen, a digital projected image, gigantic, behind a hole in the sky, let's call it, under which you see the gigantic chorus. It's just scope and scale, and what the Met, I think, does very well in this case. Huge voices, yeah, of course, a beautiful production. It has not been here for 17 years, so here we are seeing one of the first operas the Met ever did back in 1883. They say, you know, days after the the house became a house and the company became a company, they did Lohengrin way back then, and now we have it here again after a 17-year hiatus. I remember seeing this when I was so young, probably in my teens back in Michigan when the Met did their tour. I remember I I saw a week's worth of opera, and this was one of them. The swan theme rings in my head from those days as well. So much fun reporting to you from the Metropolitan Opera. This is PJ. Back to the show. (laughs) He even even cares about our transitions. He's like our sixth host. Well, he's really like our fifth because Matt's never here. So, <laughs> oh. <laughs> man, this whole show is just—it's all spice tonight. It's all spice. No, so, so here's the here's the backstory of PJ because he and I did a bit of emailing. So he okay. clearly taped that while he was at the Met. The first and, intermission. Right, so yes, and he he had written to me and he was like, "Hey, guess what? I'm going to take my Finn, my 12 year old son, to see Lohengrin tomorrow. I, I I guess he was going back maybe to see it again." I don't think the son was there when he taped the listener mailbag for us. But he he said, I'm not sure we're going to witness Act 3 due to length, which was pertinent given your interesting conversation last week about baseball shortening the games and opera companies looking to their new audiences. I checked with him today and he writes to me, okay, so cards on the table. We did not make it to Act 3. And then he goes on to say, nor did I make it to Act 3 the first time I saw it. It was a school <laughs> night and all that. He's never seen Act 3, not even <laughs> he once. He says, I-, I listened on my own to complete the story, but man, this thing is long. And it- it's true. Lohengrin, we were talking about running times again. Three hours, 55 minutes. It's three-actor, 
70 minutes, 85 minutes, 80 minutes. It's hilarious great. that the, the opera's most famous music is in the third act. <laughs> the, <laughs> yes. the, the wedding march. It's like, that's why everybody goes. It's like when you hear the, um, you know, Omio Babino Caro moment or like. You yeah. Know, yeah. I, I, there's I, a I, lot of good moments before then, though. I mean, I, I feel like Lone Grin is a kind of an underrated uh, opera in Wagner's repertoire. It, it's it's kind of bops all the way through. It's It's the first Wagner opera. I think that feels like a full experience. It doesn't have like any of the, the wonkiness of like, you know, uh, flying Dutchman or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, that brings up a question. uh, Since we have a little time, uh, what is the opera that you will always finish? Like, let's say you go Mm. to the theater to see it and like, you know, it's long, but you always will wait till the end. Or maybe you are like in your car and you turn on the radio and it's a Met Mm -hmm. broadcast. It's like, Mm -hmm. Oh my God. And this is playing today. Or maybe like me, you're, creating tons of content all the time and you go to your Spotify and you start an opera and you realize, I haven't heard this in a while. I need to hear the whole thing. What I'll, I'll start uh, because uh, the show that I cannot seem to stop listening to, if I hear any part of it, is Tales of Hoffman, I realize. Oh, really? Okay. Really? Yeah, Interesting. Be- because it has so many different, you know, characters and F- yeah, each, each act has its mm-hmm. own flavor. Sure. And uh, there's definitely like a, a progress of the tenor throughout the show because it's such, it's like the norma of lyric tenor roles. Like it's so comprehensive. You want to see like, how is he going to negotiate this? Is he going to get through this phrase? You know, it's like, can he do it? You know, there's that aspect of it. And plus, I think the tunes are the tunes are so good. And yeah. plus, I'm also listening to hear what version they're using because there's so many cuts, uh, standard cuts otherwise that are done to that opera you never know really what version of the opera you're going to get until you hear the whole thing so for me it's tales of hoffman what about you weston what show will you listen to all the way through <laughs> i mean there's so many i i've always been Pick a one. big uh, well, I'm, well my my whole thing is i i'm i am not the kind of person who i'm not a compilation album kind of person you know uh, I, I don't like the idea of listening to pieces from an opera or a symphonic work out of context of the entire okay. piece. Uh, <laughs> uh, really, for me, the, you know, it's all about my busy lifestyle, right? It's what I have time for. As much as I would love to, like, listen through Parsifal every time it, it shows up in my my shuffle, no. uh, I, I, I just don't have time. Um, right. But I will say last week, you know, the only thing I really use my shuffle for is like, you know, on my on my phone is to uh, like if I don't quite know what mood I'm in, you know, I'll, I'll shuffle and like see like what comes up. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and I did shuffle to an, uh, a 20 minute opera uh, by Paul Hindemith called Sancta Susanna. And I wasn't planning on listening to that for my, Jeez, for those man. 20 minutes, but okay. I did, it was the whole thing. And it's fun. It's got, it's got this like long organ pedal tone for like 15 minutes at the very beginning. And it ends with yeah, a okay. satanic gotcha. exorcism. Gotcha. Okay, Weston, it's good gotcha. stuff. It's so, good stuff. So actually, what is the opera that like, once you start listening to it, you cannot stop listening to it besides the Hindemith 20 minute opera. <laughs> So there are two, and I, uh, I I put a qualifying question into our chat. I was like, do I get to clean my house while I listen? Because if I'm honest, most of the time when I'm listening to classical music, it's because I'm like doing other things around my house. I'm so mm-hmm. I'm vacillating between that and podcasts. And if that's the case, and this is going to make me a basic bitch, and I don't care, cozy. <laughs> 
Cozy. Yeah, I love, oh, it. I I love, love it. it. The music in Cozy is just beautiful. Now, it is also the opera that I never need to see again in a theater, ever, ever, ever. <laughs> but mm. the music itself is just so gorgeous that it just, I mean, it's so cozy. Ave, cozy Fontuta. There it is. There it yeah. is. We've been yes. waiting for that, Jug Weston. Thank you. Um, with a runner up, weirdly enough, Trouble in Tahiti. There's something about the mm. ratty boots. They stay oh, with me. I, and so I, I listen to them a lot. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nice. George, do you have one? When when I listen to Handel's Giulio Cesare, <laughs> I, just, I mean we all know it's actually the Mikado, but I, you know I just want to go to sleep and and never <laughs> no for me it, for me it's it's very easy it's Britain's Midsummer Night's Dream hmm. it is Ooh, good choice That's good a good, that is a good choice yeah listen the reason we go to the theater is very simple when we when we're listening to a story all we want to know is what happens next and. Even in Midsummer, you know, if you know the Shakespeare play, the Britain opera, what what is going to happen next musically is always my question. The spell yeah. is cast with all these different colors, timbres, textures in the instrumentation, the orchestration, and it is so magical. This just in. The two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Conductor John Macheri is producing a world premiere of an opera by Harold Arland and Johnny Mercer. Blues opera was written to feature an all-black cast in the late 1950s, but it was never performed as conceived by its creators. The opera already has Angel Blue signed onto the project and the endorsement of classical music disruptor and friend of the show, Garrett McQueen. Sonia Yoncheva will release her first book this May. But it's not an autobiography or a screed against Zachary Wolf. Fifteen Mirrors collects the confessions and meditations of a contemporary woman who has the privilege to live under the skin of many other extraordinary women, says Yoncheva. I have chosen for you 15 of these characters as a symbol of my first 15 years on stage. Amongst them, you will recognize a few that I haven't had the chance to sing yet, but who inhabit my dreams and plans for the future. And... Yoncheva is also returning to the Met, per her Instagram, which is now run in a Beyonce-style third-party state. Her handlers <laughs> said, Sonia was happy to be back at the Met listening to Tosca, conducted by Domingo Hendoyan. Sonia is looking forward to returning home to Europe now, but she can't wait to be back at the Met in 2025 for an exciting role debut. Melbourne Opera, a regional company not known for lavish large-scale productions, has brought Wagner's epic ring cycle to the very small town of Bendigo, Australia. It fits, said stage director Suzanne Shandy, creating a whole festival environment in a relatively small town gives it a concentrated hotbed feeling. Despite mobilizing the entire town to put on the cycle, only 9% of attendees have been Bendigo residents. Washington National Opera has announced Catherine Goforth as the inaugural recipient of the True Voice Award, developed to create space for artists to identify as transgender or non-binary. The award is the brainchild of filmmaker Kimberly Reed, composer Laura Kaminsky, and librettist Mark Campbell, the creative team behind the opera as one. Goforth, who sings in the tenor register, wins a chance to perform a recital and a cash prize of $5,000. The 2023 Olivier Award for Best New Opera Production went to Richard Jones's Alcina at the Royal Opera House. 
And the outstanding achievement in opera went to director-designer William Kentridge for the chamber opera Sybil at the Barbican. An Austrian man protesting pension rights glued himself to the famed golden piano in the grand lobby of the parliament, calling the piano, quote, a symbol of decadence and aloofness. It's probably a pain to tune to. P.O.P. or Paris Opera Play is Paris Opera's new streaming platform, which will present live performances along with a catalog of on-demand productions. POP aims to make the company more accessible to foreign viewers and those who cannot afford to attend in person, with a maximum subscription fee of less than 10 euros a month. Was that a little shady towards poor people? In trade news, <laughs> Colombian conductor and violinist Andres Orozco Estrada will become the next music director of Cologne Opera. Orozco Estrada previously served as the music director of Houston Symphony Orchestra and as principal conductor of Frankfurt Radio Symphony Orchestra. On the disabled list, Yannick Nézé-Séguin bowed out of world premiere performances of John Luther Adams' Vespers of the Blessed Earth in Philadelphia and New York City due to illness. Donald Nally, Austin Chanu, and Marin Alsop split conducting duties for last weekend's performances as Nizé Seguin also withdrew from a performance at the Met. Exit stage right, countertenor James Bowman has died at the age of 81. Bowman was the first countertenor to sing at Glyndebourne, making his debut as Endymione opposite the Callisto of Janet Baker. In addition to the core countertenor Baroque repertoire, he also enjoyed success in contemporary music, creating roles in operas by Benjamin Britten, Peter Maxwell Davies, and Michael Tippett. Spanish tenor Pedro La Virgen has died at 92. Known primarily for his work in Sarsuelas, La Virgen sung a number of roles in traditional opera houses, including Vienna State Opera, Royal Opera House, La Scala, and The Met. He received a number of awards in his career, including the Spanish National Theater Award, the Gold Medal of the Circle of Fine Arts, and the Verdi de Oro. And on this day, April 3rd, in 1649, it was the birth of French composer Joseph-François Zalomon, whose first opera, Médée et Jason, was composed at the age of 52. In 1831, it was the first performance of Pietro Raimondi's Il Giulio Sabino in Naples, and that tidbit of information comes from our very own Anthony Baresi. In 1843, the Leipzig Conservatory opened under the directorship of Felix Mendelssohn. In 1871, one for PJ, it was the American premiere of Wagner's Lohengrin, all three acts of it. In 1895, Italian-American composer Mario Casanova Tedesco was born in Florence. And in 1925, on April 3rd, Gustav Holtz's opera At the Boar's Head premiered in Manchester. And that's your two-minute drill. a little bit of the great late James Bowman singing from Handel's Messiah with the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, 
That was a recording uh, from 1972. And, you know, I hang with a lot of countertenors. Um, friend of the Shocking. show, Justin Davies, is actually collecting stories about uh, James Bowman, who apparently was a very funny guy. This is from Justin Davies's Facebook. It appears that James Bowman's death has brought about one of the largest tellings of wonderfully funny stories from his life, which would be no surprise to anyone who knew him. It reminded me of one more to add to the collection. Uh, we were talking about Britain's A Midsummer Night's Dream we and go. how once he heard James uh, sing Oberon, Britain said he would like to rewrite and expand the role for your voice. James then took a beat, but then he died, which was awkward. <laughs> 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 so marvelously English. Uh, yeah. So marvelously English. The yeah. stiffest of upper lips. We could talk about all the new music he sang, but famously, he created the role of Apollo in um, Death in Venice by Britain. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Amazing. The blues opera, then. Johnny, I mean, Johnny Mercer, I think of, of course, the great American songbook. Yeah. So, Same with Arlen. So it seems like this show, written in the 50s, uh, supposed to be in the vein of like a Porgy and Bess, where you have like these, okay. you know, uh, American standards. They didn't call them standards back in their day, but, you know, these were like a classic American songbook guys uh, who wanted to, you know, pay tribute to the uh, black community. And they wrote an opera um, with an all black cast, a la Porgy and Bess. And uh, it's I this is really hard to navigate this because, you know, we want there to be more operas that have black casts that are not Porgy and Bess. We want the music to be good. We want them to be produced again and again. Uh, so maybe here is one. And, mm. um, you know, if Garrett McQueen endorses it, uh, then I think we can sort of just like say, okay, well that we can cross that off the list. Like he's not going to speak out against it, which is usually the obstacle for a lot of <laughs> creators. You know? Well, I mean, musically, yes, it's like poor game best thematically. It's not uh, one of the pros that McQueen mentions uh, in this billboard article is, you know, that they're sick of hearing about stories of like, the the misfortunes and the trials and tribulations and only featuring like the struggle mm -hmm. of poor black folk mm -hmm. in their you know in their themes and this is more about like well-to-do higher society so showing people in in sort of measures of success in a more traditional way so that's one of the things that i think has people like mcqueen and some of the other folks from black opera alliance kind of more on the positive side because on its face let's conduct and or sorry let's reorchestrate and get on its feet an opera about black people written by two white dudes in the 50s yeah. like that's not a good byline right. so yeah. you do have to dig considerably deeper so the more i read in this article on billboard the more i got nervous and was like oh no this is a terrible idea and then i got to Garrett's little vote of confidence and I was like okay all right all right I'm, I'm gonna stick with it I'm gonna stick with it <laughs> along with Angel we'll Blue being signed on of course yeah the, I, yes so something that maybe doesn't need to see the light of day is this Sonia Yanchova book <laughs> are you kidding I want a signed copy <laughs> I just so so first of all it's 89 euros it's a coffee table book. Yeah, it's a coffee table book. It's a coffee table book. She's not exactly topless on the cover, but just looking at the cover and and reading her own little blurb about it, is this going to be like Madonna's book, Sex? Do you remember when that came out in the like late nineties? I think it was, or... which was I also was a coffee table book. So. But um, you know, I think that's a stretch. But because uh, <laughs> I don't think it'll be that provocative. Um, because that I mean that book when Madonna's book came out, boy howdy! I, I think this is 
this is going to be a collector's item for some very, very, very specific people who are super fine with uh, Sonya's team speaking about her in third person <laughs> on her social media. Um, Ashley Hargrave is only mildly excited about the release of this book. Ashley may or may not read this book, but Ashley will not be purchasing it's, this book. It's basically just <laughs> cosplay for Sonya Yancheva, you know, to show herself in 15 different outfits, you know, and uh, Ooh, based on based man. on her social media, which she no longer writes, uh, she's not much of a writer, so the fact that it's a picture book. Sonia writes. Sonia definitely <laughs> writes. Sonia definitely writes all of those statements herself. She's also not a native English speaker, so like mocking her no. for her English, which is not what you're doing. I didn't mock her for English. I, know, I just said she's not. I know, no, it's, I know it's, 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 it's not what you're doing, but that's just. Yeah. But anyway, us, she she looks pretty in her costume. For so, sure. Yeah. We can we can tread lightly, but like here's the thing: you and me and everybody we know has at least one opera queen gender reserved because opera queens can be anybody. Mm-hmm. There is going to be an opera queen in your circle that's going to be really excited about Fair. this book. Is it going to be me? No, but it's going to be Fair. someone we know. Fair. <laughs> uh, well, I guess less than ten percent of the Bendigo, Australia residents are excited about this production of I, the I Ring mean, Cycle. I, that's what happens, you know. I, I think it's very interesting that this production is going on uh, in general just because, you know, The Ring, no matter what company is doing it, it's such a huge push of resources. And apparently what happened in Melbourne was that there was not, like, a, a suitable location they could find in the season to, like, uh, to, to figure out how to how to put it on. Uh, all the theaters were, were taken up, I guess. So they're like, well, we've, we've got this connection to this little tiny town. Let's go and do it there and make it sort of like, you know, a sort of a Glyndebourne kind of experience where you're going down into, like, into the country to uh, uh, to see some opera. And I, I actually love a the idea. A weekend in the country <laughs> with some glowing grins. Da, 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 da. A weekend in the country. Ha- well, here's uh, the, the thing. The- First of all, let's just let's just drill down a little bit about Bendigo. So population, 100,000. It has a cathedral, which is Australia's third tallest church building. Oh, That's interesting. And that's all I got. <laughs> he used up the entire Wikipedia page for that one, folks. I mean, I think that it's uh, obviously for a town of 100,000, like, you know, I, I honestly, almost 10% is a pretty solid number for uh, for a town of that size, I think. very Fairly respectable. I do think that there's, you know, something to be said for like, you know. Uh, obviously here in America, I think we're all about like, you know, making sure the opera really connects with the community, trying to like, you know, bring the specific community that you are in into the opera. And that's not really what this is. This is very much following the English country model uh, where uh, where it is a destination. Uh, a lot of the and, and it makes sense for the ring cycle, too, because you'll have people coming from overseas. Um, the Guardian article I, I pulled this story out of uh, uh, mentions that there were people coming as, from as far away as like Rhode Island, you know, um, like people will come from a long way for Wagner. And the demand for tickets is a lot of people who are coming from, you know, outside the area. And well, they want I, I to see the nice. show. I mean, if it's if the show's yeah. not being done in Sydney, cl- clearly people are going to travel. The Ring is just one of those shows that like people like they plan their, they, yeah. they plan their you know PTO yeah. around going to see yeah. rings. So I mean I think it's great that now they get to see Bendigo and that cathedral. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're gonna be like, wow, best best third largest <laughs> cathedral I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> okay, yeah. we're gonna wrap Impressive. we're gonna wrap up this item by saying that Bendigo's sister city is Penzance in England. Well that's where the pirates are, I hear. <laughs> I don't know what to say other than William Kentridge annoys me. 
Great. William Kentridge is from South Africa. He's a director. He's a designer. What don't you do, Bill? I don't like his productions. <laughs> I find them really irritating. And I don't know this show, Sybil at the Barbican. So who am I to criticize something I haven't seen? A. Weston? I, I quite like William Kentridge's stuff. So, you know. Richard well, Jones. I guess just, I'll have to fight I, about that Let me that just later. say this, too. Now, Richard Jones wins the Olivier for Alcina at the Royal Opera House. Was I not singing Richard Jones's praises on this very show just episodes ago? It shows you what an iconic director he is and how smart I am. Okay, so yeah, it does. Uh, so you already talked about what are the trademarks of Richard Jones, but um, what are the trademarks of William Kentridge if you hate him so, so much? So he's an illustrator mm-hmm, by yep. trade, and so all of his designs basically look like they were done with a fountain pen. So there's a lot of cross hatching on the stage. He did the uh, Voitsek that was at the Met some years ago. It just it feels like Lulu as well. Lulu, so. Like he'll have a backdrop, which he basically drew by hand on a piece of eight and a half by 11. And then that was blown up to the size of the Met stage and then transferred to like a scenic drop or something. Does he actually like know how to work with actors? I don't know. Maybe he he won an Olivier, so he did something right. No, he did did something right. But for outstanding achievement, for what? For concept, for artwork? I would love to know what it's like to be directed by him. And to be like, actually, to have to figure out, like, what does this text mean? And what are your intentions behind this text? And how are you going to bring this character to life? I'm just curious. That's fair. I'd love to know. So let me know, Bill. (laughs) Because he's clearly listening, yeah. (laughs) Big fan of our show. Almost as much as a fan as the Austrian guy who glued himself to a piano. This has been so (laughs) done now by the, you know... um, uh, climate chaos protesters and and by the way yes climate chaos it's a real thing i just when someone glues themselves to like the middle of the freeway to prevent you know traffic or in this case they're protesting um pensions, pensions thank you uh how are they removed solvent like, solvent yeah, or, remover, yeah. do they do they cut yeah. off their flesh i just i wondered about this it depends I on mean, how much I you think care it's about a the lot piano, of Crisco yeah. and some time. <laughs> that sounds familiar, doesn't it, Weston? I I feel like a lot of these protests, I think it's becoming obviously more popular to like, you know, damage works of art, glue yourself to important things. And, you know, uh, there there's oh, the, the Van I Gogh, see, the people that do the Van Gogh. thing. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It, it's very much in vogue, vogue right now uh, in the protesting world, which I, I do get like, you know, climate change especially is, you know, very pressing. And uh, I don't know what the pe- state of pensions is in. Uh, Austria, but I know that uh, in France they're protesting all that Yikes. right now. So, Yikes. so I mean, like you know, uh, sometimes if you know if that, if that's the only way you can be heard, you know, I mean, uh, I just hope the piano will be okay afterwards. You know, <laughs> and I, you know, it's just the, the gold piano, just a, just about, a, a real yeah, mess. Poor, on the what about piano. the human being, Weston? What about the human being? What about he did it, he did has it to anyone himself. thought of the piano? <laughs> No one's thinking about it. Before we wrap, oh, before we wrap the show up, PJ. So Oliver, in the um, on this day, American premiere of Lohengrin at the Met, eighteen seventy one. I think PJ had dated it some years after that. 
Sounds like there's a bit of a discrepancy here. No, I... no, that was that was the first one at the Met, which was not the first one in New York City. Ah, yeah. ooh. Different. Yeah, yeah. Sit down, George. We weren't paying attention to your up. own show. Let's wrap <laughs> this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box School. Oh, my goodness. I feel like we were very spicy in mm. taping the show. We were just kind of... It's been a very spicy episode. Kind of just not attacking each other, but just a lot of... A little bit of cayenne. A bit of teasing. A bit of teasing. Good call, bad call. That's how we're going to wrap it up. We're going to start, as always, Oliver Camacho. Well, if you're listening to this episode on the day it drops, uh, that would be Maundy Thursday because we are in Holy Week uh, for singers, Ooh. also known as Hell Week. Um, I saw um, last weekend a St. Matthew Passion and was... Debating whether or not I was going to go hear another one yesterday uh, presented by Music of the Broke because I just don't have time for that many recits. <laughs> but um, I'm so I'm so, so glad I did. I wanted to go because Roderick Williams is like ne plus ultra. Uh, but, you know, it's only whatever, like 5% of the show are the baritone solos. So the rest is like a lot of evangelizing. And a lot of long arias. Um, and it's not my favorite piece of music. It's a very important piece of music. Uh, it's very impactful. I don't think you need to see it more than once a season. Man, am I so glad that I went. Uh, a <laughs> transcendent performance of The Evangelist by a young tenor named Gwillem Bowen. I guess that's a Welsh name. Um, Must be Welsh, yeah. He, yeah. yeah. he went to Royal Academy of Music. His repertoire is Bach. Uh, flute in Midsummer Night's Dream. He sings mm-hmm. a lot of Handel and Monteverdi, but this young man was born to sing Matthew Passion Evangelist. It was so comprehensive. And I asked him after the performance, like, how long have you been doing this? Like, this is my sixth one. So in six Jeez. in six tries, getting it to that much detail, this is, I don't know, it's basically like singing Siegfried or like singing, you know, uh, Norma. It's just mm-hmm. like, it is the gigantic you know, role in the Bach passions. And uh, he was incredible. And uh, you're going to hear more about Willem Bowen. I'm going to try to get him on the show even. Weston Williams. There's a really neat uh, article. So apparently there's a, there's a, in the, one of the Smithsonian museums, there's a, uh, there's an exhibition which has a lot of portraits of, of important people from marginalized groups that are um, that have made up the American artistic uh, and pop cultural experience. And there was a photo included of the uh, singer uh, Chanina Redfeather, who was an opera singer at the turn of the century. Uh, uh, and there's some old recordings of her. And I didn't know that much about her. I'd heard her name before in passing. But we're going to uh, post the, a link to this uh, article from the Smithsonian Magazine about her because it's fascinating. Um, because to have this indi- uh, indigenous uh, woman on these opera stages and making these opera recordings at a time where, you know, um, there was, the, you know, the genocide of <laughs> indigenous Americans was almost complete yeah. in this country. Uh, it's just a, such a fascinating story of like this, of, of someone who is really genuinely popular, a really big deal in her day, who has kind of vanished from history a little bit, even from, you know, the knowledge of people like me. Um, and I just loved learning about it. And I want to seek out some of her, um, her old uh, phonograph recordings, but uh, really absolutely check it out. Um, it's really, really fascinating. It's the Smithsonian Magazine article about Chanina Redfeather. It's really, really interesting. Ashley Hardgrave. 
Um, I want to talk really quickly about a moment of bravery in a different part of the musical world. Uh, Kelsey Ballerini is a country music artist, and uh, country music kind of, you know, their their home base is in the city of Nashville, Tennessee, which, you know, has gone through a couple of things in the last few weeks. Uh, and Kelsey Ballerini was hosting the CMT Awards, the Country Music Television Awards, last night. And she opened the show with a pretty bold statement about her thoughts on the incidents around the Nashville shooting and the number of mass shootings that have gone on in America. Uh, and and it was a, it was a it was we would consider it a thoughtful and kind move. Uh, but considering who the country music community traditionally serves, it was a little bit of a bold and a little bit of a controversial move. She went then went on after continuing to host the broadcast to perform on the stage with four drag queens. Now, you might mm-hmm. know that drag has now all been banned right. in the state of Tennessee. And so between speaking on gun violence and mass shootings and performing with drag queens at the beacon of country music in Nashville, Tennessee, um, mm. she's getting she's getting a bit of backlash from some of the uh, more conservative voices within her community. So uh, for every... Every listener to our show who is interested in boldness and bravery in the face of injustice, I encourage you to go to Spotify or whatever your streaming service is and just stream one Kelsey Ballerini song this Mm. week just to Mm. help set that algorithm a little more on the right track. If you're listening to the episode on the day that it dropped, it's also the first day of Passover. Good Pesach to all of you. The men's NCAA basketball will, of course, be a distant memory by that time. But what won't be a memory is one shining moment. It is the epic song, which is produced with a montage of the highlights of the entire tournament. This is like a Sports Sando segment now. David Barrett, the lyrics start, (laughs) the ball is tipped, and there you are. You're running for your life. You're a shooting star. And it all... Oh, dear. It just makes me cry. Every time I watch one shining moment, I end up crying. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send us a voice memo or even email us your hot takes, operaboxscore@gmail.com. Find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, operaboxscore.com. And that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS on the donate page. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. And your audio editor is Weston Williams. For co-host Ashley Hardgrave with guest Daniel Guntlach, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera, saying more about my inner world than any autobiography possibly could. We're back with an all-new show next week when we go inside the huddle with Matthew Principe, director of live streams at Boston Baroque. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more swans and second intermission exits. Join us.